I'm Cherish Brown, and I believe in the power of a story well told. I am so fascinated by stories that teach and inspire. On this podcast, I sit down with various people who are taking passionate responsibility for their own lives and giving it their creative best. Creative best. Creative best. Hey friends, welcome to your Creative Best Podcast. I'm your host, Cherish Brown, and I thank you so much for joining me. I have a wonderful conversation with an amazing author coming up next. But first, I wanted to say hello because this moment has been such a long time coming. I've had people reaching out to me saying, Cherish, where's the episodes? Are you still doing the podcast? What's going on? So I could not be more happy to say that the time has finally come. So thank you for tuning in to join me for this journey. We are finally here and I am ready to rock and roll. Today on Your Creative Best, I talk with Marcus Doe, who at the age of 13 fled to the United States after surviving the devastating civil war of Liberia, West Africa. Today, Marcus pastors a church in Denver, Colorado, and is also the author of Catching Rice Birds, a beautifully written, compelling memoir that recounts his journey from violence and despair to freedom and forgiveness. To me, Marcus is the perfect guest to kick off your creative best because his story not only shows what can happen in a life that's filled with faith and hard work, but it also beautifully illustrates the lesson of forgiveness forgiveness. We talk a lot about self-care. When you say self-care, we think about manicures, getting a massage, having a spa day, watching a movie, and that is all wonderful and very helpful. But sometimes we need to do the work of the soul. We need to lighten our weight, right? I think so. And what better way to kick off a new year, to kick off a new decade, than to shed the heavy burden of unforgiveness? It's possible. Here's my conversation with Marcus Doe. Were you afraid to write your story? I was. I was. Uh, So with with a story so vivid and so emotional as mine, I was very, very nervous Mm. uh, to write it, very afraid to write it uh, for several reasons. Uh, One, I felt as though the 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 thrust of my story may not be received uh back home even though it's needed is that the the idea of forgiveness and particularly forgiving people who have hurt you so badly and may hurt you again uh was could be perceived as naive yeah in a sense yeah but i i took this step and i started that was one reason I wrote the book. The other reason I wrote the book was I actually didn't think the book would ever get published. I wrote it because I, I thought, man, my kids would want to know if I had kids where their father came from, where their grandfather came from, where their great grandfather came from. And I wanted to write this story. That's why the story is so detailed because I wrote it so that if they wanted to trace the steps, they could go back to Liberia mm-hmm. and trace 
the story to themselves. And I was blessed with just a wonderful memory for dates and events. Yes. Uh, so all of that is in the book precisely from the age right, as young as I was, I was able to capture snapshots of crucial events in my life with a date stamp in my brain. And I always share this with people who said, man, I, I really want to write a book someday. Mm-hmm. You know, and my inspiration to them is it, it, it takes a lot of discipline to do yeah. it um, yeah. from from 2008 to 2011, right? Uh, for 2008 to 2010, I did not have a TV. I was a teacher. I came home every night and I wrote one paragraph a day minimum for two and a half years. And I said, this is my commitment. This is what I have to do if I want to do this thing right. And some of those, some of those nights were incredibly emotional. Mm. And some of them were, were filled with laughter. And at that point, I wasn't married. So I, was, I was single sitting at my dining room table. And I wasn't even a great, I'm not a great typer. So yeah. it took a long time to write it. But I was disciplined. I had this North Star that one day I will finish this thing. And I don't know what I will see the light of day, but somebody's going to read this. So I'm going to do my best to do it well. So uh, I grew up in, in Monrovia, Liberia, one of the most wonderful places in, in the world. I'm obviously biased. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where uh, uh, Liberia was founded by free slaves from America. Most people don't know that. Mm. Um, the Liberian flag is 11 stripes and one star as opposed to 13 stripes for the American flag and 50 stars, same color yeah. scheme. Uh, a lot of the cities of Liberia are named after American presidents or people who came, African-Americans who left here and went back to Liberia, right? Yeah. I always tell African-Americans who are saying, oh, I want to go back and visit Africa. Where should I go? Your closest relatives are somewhere in West Africa mm. and probably they're Liberians. Um, we have Jacksons, we have Johnsons. Barclay, Davis, all those last wow. names exist in Liberia because a lot of those people who left the South or America went to Liberia. Liberia was, you know, founded as a pseudo, I would say, by the American Colonization Society in 1822. Liberia became independent in 1847. Um, I grew up in a home where my father was the assistant director for the Secret Service of the country, and he had worked with the Secret Service for a long time. My mother was barely literate. Uh, worked at the university as she took care of the dorms, mop floors, or checked kids in, whatever she did. And I have I have five siblings. And yeah. I'm the youngest of five siblings. So grew up in Liberia all that time. And we can get into this later, but it was a civil war. Mm-hmm. I lost my parents. I lost contact with my brothers. I lived as a refugee. I came to the state at 13 years old, not knowing up from down, hadn't seen, hadn't seen, uh, hadn't seen weather or temperatures below 75 mm-hmm. degrees. Mm-hmm. And I landed in Boston in March, and it was absolutely freezing. Yeah. People always said, "Then why did you move to Denver?" <laughs> <laughs> True. But I, 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 have adop- I have adapted, I suppose. Uh, yeah. But my story is one of one of loss, one of redemption. I think one of resiliency of not giving up on not giving up on life, not making excuses for life, and pursuing dreams till till they till they come till they come true. Um, mm. Yeah, that's a little bit. 
Okay. <clears throat> so you came to the United States in what year? 1993, March 31st, 1993, I stepped foot on the United States. 1993, and at that time, the <coughs> Civil War in Liberia was still happening. Correct? Yeah, it was still going on. Right. It started in 89 and went all the way to 2003, yeah. So you're here, you're getting adjusted, you come here with your brother, correct, your older brother, but yeah. you still have um, siblings that are in Liberia at this point. Yeah. Your mom has passed away and your dad, did you already know that he had disappeared or there hadn't been any news from him? Or did you find that out once you were, were here already? The last time I saw my dad was June of 1990. And I left Liberia in November of 1990. While living as a refugee in Ghana, uh, that's when I found out that my, my father had lost his life. Okay. Um, He was killed. Right. Um, and the realization hit me that I was now an orphan because I knew mm-hmm. my mother had died. My mother died two years earlier. So I, the realization that I was an orphan really put me in a, I would call it an emotional vertigo. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to process being an orphan and mm-hmm. I was an orphan in another country. And I mean, I remember people saying the word orphan and I used to think how horrible would that be wow. to have no parents? And then it happened to me. Yeah. And then the way it happened to me was someone someone took my father's life, mm. you know. And while I was in the war in Liberia, I saw how people were treated when, when they were being killed. A lot of civilians and were killed in the war, and I saw how they were degraded, how they were treated poorly, and how their bodies were left out. So all those images were in my brain mm-hmm. when I got the news that my father had been killed. My father doesn't have a grave. You know, his body was left out somewhere. So it was, mm. it was, it was so hard. I mean, yeah. at that point, I think uh, I was 12 and I lost a little bit of my, my, um, my faith, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lost a lot of confidence in the goodness of God to say, we sing the song red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. Mm-hmm. And I was I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see that. Mm. Uh, I didn't lose faith in God, but I just, I didn't know where I fit. Right. Right. At some point you start role playing. Um, what's going to happen if you ever come in contact with the guy who, who murdered yeah. your dad? Um, yeah. Do you know exactly when that started for you? It started uh, probably around 13 okay. or 14. Okay. Uh, so I was either I just before I came to America or when I got to America, because things were just so hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would sit in I would sit in my classrooms, and when the room would go silent, it's almost like my brain came alive with the images of war, mm. and 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 I started to picture this man who I felt like this is the fate that made my where my life is. Yeah. And so I started to picture that man. And I started to picture putting an axe in his ribs or shooting him. And then those images grew and grew and grew and it grew. So I was in my mid-20s when and, and, and sitting at my dining room table. Actually, it grew to me having conversations yeah. with this person. Um, uh, very aggressive, very loud conversation. Yeah. Myself sitting in front of this empty chair. 
and that was a mental thing that I had to get over. Yeah. But I, I struggled. Uh, I struggled with this man. You had a realization that your father's murderer was controlling your life. You had a mental relationship with him. Yeah. You know, that whole yeah. that whole narrative just turned into somewhat of a companion for you. Not just a burden, but this is someone that you would talk to. You would imagine having conversations with this person and taking vengeance out on them. Um, but you do get to a point where you say that you realize that that was controlling your life. Yeah, it did. So why do you think it's difficult sometimes for us to end things that connect us to pain? Because I think it gives us it gives us the illusion of power, mm. um, the the illusion that we can control our circumstances, or we can avenge and make things right in our own power. I think that's how I felt, and I felt good. Yeah. Whenever I would cuss him out in the chair, or I would go through and grit my teeth and and punch him in the face, or put a bullet through him or cut him up. And, and I mean, that sounds terrible, but I, I felt like I had the power to get yeah. back what he yeah. took from me. And in reality, I did not have the power, right? Mm -hmm. I was living this life mm -hmm. in this, in this, in this cloud that affected me in so many different ways. No one knew I was doing this. Yeah. Right. No one in my life. I never told anyone in my life that, Hey, when I go home at night and I'm really upset, this is what I do, right? When oh. I go on a run, my my brain, my the images of my brain will go away. This is why I can't sit in a quiet room and take a test mm. because when the room goes quiet, my mind goes there. And I know there are people in this world or in this country that are having these kinds of thoughts, maybe not as severe as I'm having them. I used to have them. Right. But you go there because someone has hurt you so deeply and whenever there's an adverse situation that you don't say you have control over, you go to this place mentally because you have control over yeah. this situation you think. Yeah. Right? It's a psychological thing. And you feel powerful. While reading the story, I thought, my God, how, how do you move on from that? I couldn't imagine carrying that weight, that anger, that pain for that long. How do you move on from here? How do you let go and move on to greater, to better. How do you become free? In your book, you said that you reached a moment, I believe it was the day you graduated um, college. That guy was there, that pain was there, that unforgiveness was still there. And you made a decision. You said, well, I don't want him to be here today. Yeah. And not just in that moment, but you started thinking ahead. You know, when I get married, is, this, is he going to be here? You know? What was that like to experience the new feeling of it's time to let this go? Were you angry at yourself or angry at God even for even thinking about possibly letting this go? Like, did you did you go through oh, a struggle with that as well? I did. Uh, and that, that, that was a four, five, six year process, I would mm. say, probably starting around when I graduated because I mean, I, I, I graduated from high school, barely. Um, and a few people came to my graduation. But that night, thinking, man, it would be nice to have my parents here, right? I played college sports. And we did senior day. And I walked out of the field with our parents and everybody else had their parents. You know, it was all yeah. these little reminders 
that you don't, someone took something from you that you can never, ever get back. Yes. Uh, and for me to come to the point where I feel like, oh, maybe I should, how can I walk away from this thing? How can this thing stop controlling me? How can I, it had grown for years, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't think I had a control over it. So I think when I made a decision to say, you know what, I'm going to start walking this path so I can let this thing go so I can forgive this man. I thought through the, the ramifications of it. Uh, one, I didn't know how my family would feel, um, uh, how my friends would feel. But like, well, this person took something. You don't have to do this. You don't have to, you know, try to find him. You don't have to, you don't, you don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. But I thought I knew where I was and how dark it was for me. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't do it, my life would still be kind of living in second or third year. And I couldn't hit my full potential. I couldn't hit my full potential academically. I couldn't hit my full potential spiritually. I couldn't hit my full potential emotionally. Like I struggled just to maintain positive relationships in my life because I had to think. Yes. You know? Yes. So you, you got to a point where you had to count up the cost and unforgiveness was just too expensive. Right. It was. Yeah. It, it, It totally is. It totally is. It's too expensive to have someone else occupy real estate in your brain mm. in a hateful way. Right. Right. It's too expensive. So I sat, I sat across from a therapist and she asked me, she said, can you live the rest of your life, rest of your life the way you are today? Hmm. And I knew that I couldn't, mm. you know, and then just reading, reading the word. I, I was reading Matthew six and Jesus says, you know, forgive those. If you don't forgive those who, who sin against you, your heavenly father will not forgive you. And I had read those words before, and people say this all the time, but it's right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. When I read that, I thought, wow. Yeah. If I don't do this, right, what yeah. what, what what is there for me to lose? The whole, if I can hold on to this, I'm just killing myself. You're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. It's like you know? unforgiveness uh, robs us not only of a healthy future, but also um, healthy relationships. In, in our future. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. So, so at this point, you've gone from wanting to find the man who who killed your father. You go from wanting to kill him to now seeking him out to forgive him uh, because you feel that that is absolutely necessary for you to um, to have a healthy life. There have been different points in life where I feel like, oh, I forgave that person. Because maybe I put it out of my mind. But it really wasn't true forgiveness. You know, I feel like true forgiveness is transformative. It it, it yeah. alters you in a way. It totally strips you of everything, you know. Because unforgiveness can become somewhat of an alibi for us. It's like a, a preoccupation. It's a reason why we can't fully show up in our own lives. You also said this at some point in the book. You said that to forgive this person to let this go would eliminate any excuse you had to not move forward in your emotional and your spiritual growth. Yeah. We create for ourselves, uh, like you said, an alibi or a way of escape. I'm not mm-hmm. facing, I'm not facing up the life because you have this path and, yeah. and, and in reality you think you're controlling it, but it is controlling you. Yeah. Um, so for folks, I, I know folks who said, man, my dad did this to me when I was young or, or, you know, there are different situations, and a lot of them are very painful situations. I'm not discounting mm-hmm. that. But if you don't begin to walk that path to confront this thing, it will it will eat you from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I made that decision 
to not only forgive the man in word, but also do it in deed, right? Yeah. To, to do the best I could to go after and find him. And it was a risky, it was a very risky thing to do on my part because I didn't know how he was going to react. Right. 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 I, I, I didn't know you if knew he was nothing. belligerent. Yeah. If, yeah. If he was going to be, oh, yeah, you know, I remember this. Uh, is he going to retell me this story of how he killed my dad? Mm-hmm. Is he is he going to say, oh, I, I'm so sorry? Or is he going to spit my face? I wanted to give it, I wanted to give it the best shot I could. So, so what would you say to someone who, who sits there, they count the cost and they say, Hmm, if I actually overcome this or I make it through this or decide to do things differently, I have to continue to walk that out forever. And I don't know if I'm willing to sacrifice what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Like you said, folks have to count the cost. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to be willing to accept what the outcome is that you cannot you cannot control mm-hmm. that outcome. You cannot control the other person, but you don't want them controlling you. Right. Right. It's really, uh, really sometimes it's actually more freeing for you than it is for the other person. Uh, yeah. Sometimes people are willing or waiting to be forgiven and welcome back. You know, that's also a thing. The the other part of it is it, it's, it was so freeing for me. It was so freeing and to live the life, to, to, to put things behind you that need to be behind you, that are behind you, Yeah, was so freeing to me. It was almost like a new horizon mm. opened up for me. You know, in every yeah. category of life, it was like this new horizon. Oh, man. It yeah. was like a new sunrise, a new day, you know? Mm-hmm. It was, I would encourage anyone who is wanting to take the journey of forgiveness that not sure what everybody's situation is, but everybody's journey is different. I wouldn't rush into into forgiveness, but I also would not wait because if you mm. wait and say, until I do this, until I do this, you may never get there. You may never get there. Start taking the steps now. It may be a longer journey than you anticipate, but if you say, if I get so-and-so right before I do this, you may never get there. Later on in that same chapter, you said that I had a picture I had to picture a different moment of forgiveness. And I believe that was right after you found out that your dad's murderer was actually no longer living. Um, So you had built up all this anticipation and you had worked it out. You rehearsed it in your mind and also in your heart about how you would say and um, handle the interaction with this person who you found out he's no longer living and you've made it all the way back to Liberia. You're surrounded by your family what can people do when the person they need to forgive is not available? First, tell us how you handled that. Um, and then maybe, you know, give advice to someone who's in the same situation. I think that those are, like I said, before we begin this conversation, that I took some courageous risks. Yeah. Uh, uh, 20 years, right? I'm 31 years old at that point. Uh, I left Liberia at 11 years old. I buy a ticket to go back to Liberia, one, to see my siblings that I hadn't seen in 20 years, two, to find this man, right? I'm yeah. going to find this man. I get on the plane, and I'm ready to go. It's anxious, you know, I'm anxious. And I land in Liberia, and I'm there for a few weeks, asking a few people, and then it, it's clear that everybody knows that this man has died. You know, and he's not only dead, he's been dead since 1996. Wow. So the sad part about my, the sad part about my life is, I had held on to this thing for, you know, 20 years against somebody 
who was controlling my life, who was no longer on earth. Mm-hmm. Right? I think there's a lesson to be learned there. Like sometimes people move past, sometimes people people die, or people move past, and we're still holding this grudge against them. Uh, it was just the greatest the, the greatest trip I've ever taken, the greatest risk that I ever yeah. took, mm-hmm. and I'm glad I did it. So wow. I get there, and and he's nowhere to be found. So I sit and I say, you know, I made this probably the best best possible outcome. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. But I had gone through the exercise mm. mm-hmm. of forgiveness. Yeah. I had gone through the converse, the hard part I had gone through. I was ready for whatever outcome would have happened when he, if, he, if he was there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I tell people that I was already free. Mm. Uh, and and the, the meeting of, of him, meeting with him would have just been a formality to put a face to this to this person that I'm gonna walk away from, give yeah. a hug to, and actually bless them. Yes. <laughs> right. And 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 say, you know, maybe you've lived with the guilt of killing my father for the longest time. Mm. Right. I, I I'm not saying I'm not saying that um, people always say, oh, Marcus, you know, you don't believe in justice. Yes, I do. Right. Justice has its course. Yes. Forgiveness is not naive. Forgiveness is not naive. It's very courageous. Mm. Right. Justice has to take its course. I think forgiveness is man to man. What happens in my head wow. for 20 years that I'm, I'm holding on to is, is, is a self imprisonment. When mm. I forgive doesn't mean that person will not face the consequences of their actions, but I'm walking away from this knowing that my life is going to be better mm. because of what God has done for me and what I'm going to do here. Right. Mm. And that's how I walked away from him. Wow. And, the, and it's towards the, towards the end of the book, I wrote a letter to him just to explain who I, who my father was mm-hmm. and who he actually killed. And then walked through and say, you know what? I forgive you. I will never get my father back, but I'm going to have my life back. And I'm yes. going to make sure you do not control the narrative of my father or my life. Like yes. you are no longer a part of my life. Yes. Yeah. Maybe you're at a place where you want to forgive somebody, but they want nothing to do with you and they could still be living. It's still healthy, like you said, to go through the practice of forgiveness um, because that is doing the work. And if you're fortunate enough to come face to face with a person, that's a gift to them. But you've already done the the soul work of, of getting it done. What I love about how this was written is that forgiveness took on several different levels. <laughs> yeah. And um, first it's all about, okay, forgiving the guy. And then you get there, you realize the guy's no longer around. So that was a plot twist. And then after that, you go even deeper um, to say that, you know, we want to be the forgivers, but we also have to see ourselves as the forgiven. Yeah, yeah. Just talk a little bit about that because there is a bit of self-righteousness in you've done me wrong, you've hurt me. And so I can, I can forgive you, but it's, it's my forgiveness to give. You know what I mean? Yeah. We all deserve, we all deserve to be forgiven, right? And mm-hmm. I think in that forgiveness, we are set free. Christ is the only innocent sufferer for sin. Uh, he's the only one that can fully forgive us and no one walks this earth without 
needing forgiveness from someone or doing something. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. It is a, a bit of a self-righteous thing to say, I forgave him as if my slate is completely right. clean, right? Our right. slate is never completely clean. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of humility there. And I think I felt some of that humility because uh, maybe 10 years before, 20 years before, I would have I would have done the exact same thing to him that he did to my father mm. and his family and his, you know, I see all of that. I see that trauma being replayed. Wow. And in order to put a stop to that generational trauma that I could have created by killing him, I put a stop to it. And people would say, oh, you, you, you took the L. I took the loss. Well, Jesus Christ took the ultimate L <laughs> on the cross, yeah. right, for mm-hmm. all of us so that we may live and we may, we may see what it looks like to, to walk in a, in a, in a, in a free, mm. in, a, in a way that is more freeing than anything we can imagine. It's not a, it's a physical, emotional, spiritual freedom mm. is, what, is what Christ gave us. It's just, it's just beautiful. Wow, it's it, just, it, it is beautiful. Friend. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Your book, if placed in a certain context, can resonate differently. Like you were saying, yeah. you know, when you wrote the book, you weren't sure how Liberians would receive the book. You know, if if they're ready to receive this message of forgiveness because of everything they've experienced and, and survived. So how has the response been? Uh, yeah, great question. Great question. Uh, I have one of one of the most powerful stories that I, I, I've experienced. Uh, I was at a man was in Massachusetts somewhere. I was giving a talk about this, about the book. The book had just come out, and it was a Liberian audience, and it was the first Liberian audience that I ever faced wow. um, talking about forgiveness. Because Liberia is so small, you know, at that two, three, four, five million people, everyone lost someone. I just mm. lost a lot more people in the war, yeah. right? So yeah. I'm sitting in this audience, and I'm going to tell the story. And Liberians, whenever you, Liberians go up. Doe is a very common last name in Liberia. Mm-hmm. So when people, when I start telling the story, people know the end of their story. Like, I'm going to lose a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm telling the story, and I get to the point of forgiving, and I start telling it, and I'm done. And the part that I was most afraid of was the Q&A, right? <laughs> so they open up the mic, and people start asking questions. And then there's a gentleman in the room who was led up by a young girl who was, like, who was his daughter, and he's blind. And he walked up to the mic. He said to me, he said, you see that I'm blind? And I say, yes. He said, a rebel soldier poured acid in my eyes Mm. during the war. And I lost my eyesight because someone did this to me. And I mean, my heart sank into my stomach because I thought he was going to say, what you're saying does not make sense and I can't do it. Mm But from his perspective, he looked at me, he looked up at me and he said, yes, I have to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. He said, your message rings so true to even me who has lost my eye and will never see my children again. I'm going, I, I choose to forgive because I can't live in the spiritual darkness along with my physical darkness. Wow. And I mean, I, there was a moment there, and I'm a crier. I mean, yeah. tears yeah. came down my face because I thought he was going to say something else. Mm-hmm. So that's been the general response from Liberians. 
is that we have an opportunity to, to, to change the trajectory of the country, uh, to not marginalize people who have hurt us, but help people who have hurt us so the war doesn't happen again. Um, one of my life's goals is to make sure there's no longer child soldiers on the face of this earth mm-hmm. uh, because it, it, it damages kids' futures, it damages childhood, it damages a, a nation, right? it damages a people. Yeah. What happened in Liberia should never happen anywhere else. What happened in my life should never happen, right? But yeah, that's yeah. been a response of librarians, largely positive, um, incredible, incredible credibility because people know with my last name, I should not have survived the war. What do you want your legacy to be? Uh, man, I have that's a that's an excellent question. Uh, I live my life. Uh, I'm very grateful mm-hmm. uh, because I've 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 had very little. Uh, I've lost a lot, but my, my legacy would be, I think, to librarians, to Americans, is to is to practice the act of forgiveness um, on such a wider scale. Because I think. This is a Brian Stevenson quote. Uh, no one deserves to be judged by the worst moments of their life. Mm. And that's how I felt like I was judging, you know, making making assumptions of people. We do this with Americans. We do this yes, with people who have fallen into all kinds of things. Absolutely. Right? People yes. are judged, right? Refugees are called refugees for the rest of their life. They yes. should not because being a refugee the worst moment of your life. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be called that for the wow. rest of your life. Wow. An orphan. I was an orphan. I was called an orphan. I am an orphan, but that's not, that's the worst moment of my life. I should be defined by that for the rest of my life. Right. Wow. People who, who have taken lives or done things. Yeah. They, the justice take its course with them, but that can't be their sole marker in life. I think my legacy, I hope is as I go forward, be the man to, to encourage people to walk the journey of forgiveness despite how difficult it is with people who have hurt you and may even hurt you in the future. Mm. That's what I think. Um, I mean, it it still hurts. My parents, I mean, my parents' birthdays come, right? Uh, You know, I I remember them, even though I barely remember them now. But it's a a lot of great things that's happened in my life. My parents are no longer there. Yeah, but I smile now when I talk about them, right? Mm. Because their legacy is bigger than they probably could have ever imagined. Yeah. I've gone on to do greater things, even though there are hard things. And this is a story that I didn't want to share, but it turns out it is the story that I share. Hey, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marcus Doe. It was such an honor and a treat to sit and chat with him about his story and his amazing memoir, Catching Rice Birds. You can find that book on his website at catchingricebirds.com. It's also available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. He also has a TED Talk that he recently did that will be released probably in the next week or so. So be on the lookout for that. Also follow Marcus on Twitter at Marcus Doe. And while you're at it, go subscribe to your creative best podcast. It's available everywhere. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. So there's no excuse not to be tuned in. 
I cannot wait to bring you more great stories and good conversation. You know, while our stories may not be like Marcus Doe's, I feel like we all get to a place where we have to take a courageous step. And whatever your courageous step may be, I'll leave you with this. It's possible. Thanks for listening.